I'm going to read today from the 118th Psalm, which is the Psalm which is uh, quoted in um, Palm Sunday. And as uh, you see, it is Palm Sunday. We've got palms on the walls. And uh, so in a commemoration of Jesus uh, riding into Jerusalem on that day, uh, the 118th Psalm. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Let Israel now say his mercy endures forever. Let the house of Aaron now say his mercy endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord now say his mercy endures forever. I called on the Lord in distress. The Lord answered me and set me in a broad place. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is for me among those who help me. Therefore, I see my desire on those who hate me. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. All nations surrounded me, but in the day name of the Lord, I will destroy them. They surrounded me. Yes, they surrounded me, but even but in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. They surrounded me like bees. They were quenched like a fire of thorns, for in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. You pushed me violently that I might fall, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. The voice of rejoicing and salvation is in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but live and declare the works of the Lord. The Lord has chastened me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I will go through them, and I will praise the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord, through which the righteous shall enter. I will praise you, for you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. God is the Lord. He has given us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God and I will praise you. You are my God, I will exalt you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. All right, today's sermon is uh, Exodus 7, 14 through 25. It's entitled, The Plague of Blood. So Exodus 7, starting in verse 14. So the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hard. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning when he goes out to the water, and you shall stand by the river's bank to meet him. And the rod which was turned to a serpent you shall take in your hand. And you shall say to him, The Lord God of the Hebrews has sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But indeed, until now, you would not hear. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will strike the waters which are in the river with the rod that is in my hand, and they shall be turned to blood. And the fish that are in the river shall die, the river shall stink, and the Egyptians will loathe to drink the water of the river. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your rod and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their streams, over their rivers, over their ponds, and over all their pools of water, that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in buckets of wood and pitchers of stone. And Moses and Aaron did so, just as the Lord commanded. So he lifted up the rod and struck the waters that were in the river. 
in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, and all the waters that were in the river were turned to blood. The fish that were in the river died, the river stank, and the Egyptians could not drink the water of the river. So there was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. Then the magicians of Egypt did so with their enchantments, and Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them, as the Lord had said. And Pharaoh turned and went into his house. Neither was his heart moved by this. So all the Egyptians dug all around the river for water to drink, because they could not drink of the water of the river. And seven days passed after the Lord had struck the river. One premise of a creator God is that he is all-knowing. Everything from the beginning to the end is known to him immediately, and it is known intuitively. He doesn't have to make deductions or conclusions. Rather, he simply knows. And this doesn't just mean mechanical things like one plus one or how birds are able to fly. It includes all things, including the secret things of the heart and the mind. Every thought that we have, everything that we will do, and even what will prompt us to do other things are all known to him. The Bible says he searches out our hearts in order to affect his purposes on the earth. He searches us out in order to judge us, and he searches us out so he can guide us. It is a way of saying that everything about us is known to him. In this, there is nothing that we can keep secret from him. Why did you give to a particular charity? Though you may have thought it was to do good, it may have been for a reason that you've suppressed so deeply that you might not even realize the truth of the matter. You may have committed some sin and you're trying to get rid of it by giving, you know, in this charity or that charity or some other way. The Lord, he, however, knows exactly why you did it and why you do all things. Our text verse today comes from Jeremiah chapter 17. It's the 10th verse. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. Today, we will see the first plague that was brought upon the land of Egypt. It, like the miracle of the rod turning into a serpent, will be repeatable, at least in part, by Pharaoh's magicians. And because of this, he will fail to see the plague in the proper context. Not only is it on a completely different scale, but it's a precursor to more plagues intended to secure Israel's release. If Pharaoh had heeded the Lord already, he would have saved himself and Egypt much grief. But in order for the Lord to be glorified, he selected this plague first. He did it not to obtain Israel's freedom, but to further harden Pharaoh's heart. And it will have its intended effect because it is the Lord who searches the hearts and minds in order to effect his purposes. Let's remember this and let's keep our hearts soft to the things of God and to the truths which are found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again and may God speak to us through his word today and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have three thoughts for you today. The first is, you shall know that I am the Lord. It's verses 14 through 18. Verse 14, so the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hard. He refuses to let the people go. The last words we saw came after the miracle of the rods turning into serpents. Aaron had cast down his rod and it had become a serpent. But the magicians of Egypt had done the same. In response, it said, And Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them, as the Lord had said. But that wasn't the only thing to bring hardening to his heart. Way back in chapter 5, the Lord had instructed Moses to simply go and ask Pharaoh for permission to allow Israel to go into the wilderness and worship. 
by taking this avenue and knowing the obstinate nature of Pharaoh, the Lord knew that he would harden his heart, and he did. Pharaoh felt that he had gained victory over Israel and the God of Israel by his refusal. In turn, he laid a heavier burden on them. This too would have given perverse satisfaction to him and a further hardening of his heart. Each thing is, which has been done has been calculated to bring about a desired end known to the Lord who created man. The first miracle of the rods was not a judgment on Egypt, but a display intended to lull Pharaoh into a greater state of dullness. It served that purpose well. He wasn't convicted, but rather he was emboldened. The light that was given was swallowed up by the darkness of his false magicians, thus closing his eyes to what lay ahead. Now the judgments would begin. Knowing this, the Lord says to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hard. However, a completely different word than was used in the previous verse is used. It says, Chabed lev paro, Pharaoh's heart is heavy. The previous word was chazak, hard. This word is chabed, heavy. There is a dullness and a stupidity of response to the plagues which are coming. Unlike, for example, a bird which will flit away at any danger, an ox will fail to see the disaster ahead and it will just plod directly into it. This is the intent of the Lord's words now. Verse 15, go to Pharaoh in the morning when he goes out to the water. There is specificity here that we're being asked to look at. Two things in particular. One, it's morning time and Pharaoh is going out to the water. Scholars have looked at various reasons for this, such as maybe he was going out to bathe or maybe going out to pray to the Nile, which is one of his de deities in Egypt or maybe to see how high the river was in order to determine whether it's time to plant the crops or not, and other things. They've su suggested all of these possibilities. I would suggest that it is for worship, and that the worship is actually twofold. First, he is there to worship the Nile, but secondly, to worship the sun as it first alights on the Nile. Pharaoh, believing that he is the son of the sun god, Ra, would be there to honor his supposed father God, as well as the Nile, which reflected the coming of Ra. This is speculation, but it does fit with the placement of both words. Verse 15, and you shall stand by the river's bank to meet him, and the rod which was turned to a serpent, you shall take in your hand. This seems straightforward enough that no commentary is really necessary, and so we're just gonna skip over the rest of this verse. No, commentary is necessary. The word for serpent here is not what was used in the previous passage that we looked at last week. When Aaron cast down the rod before Pharaoh, last week we saw that it turned into a tanin. Here it says that it is turned into a nachash, a completely different word. This asks us to consider why. Now last week I gave you the reason, but this week I'm going to give you three possibilities so that you can think them through in case I was wrong. The first is that Moses and Aaron each had a different rod. The rod that Moses threw down in front of the bush was a nachash, the same rod that he would have seen uh, when he performed that same miracle before the Israelites. But the rod that Aaron threw down was his own, and instead it turned into a tanin. And so now the first rod is being used again, which turned into a nachash. Okay, we know that's not correct. The second option is that it is the same rod thrown down and one time it turned into a nachash and the second time it turned into something different, a tanin. Here in this verse then, the Lord's words would be referring to the first account. That makes no sense. That's not correct. 
The third option is that the words are being used synonymously in one way, but showing a distinction in another. The Nahash, as I said last week, was revealing Christ as the giver of the miracle. But the Tanin was assumed to be a false miracle by Pharaoh, and thus Christ was hidden from his eyes. Based on the use of the word Nahash elsewhere in Scripture, I believe that this option is correct. Verse 16, And you shall say to him, The Lord God of the Hebrews has sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But indeed, until now, you would not hear. This refers right back to Exodus chapter 5, especially verses 1 through 9. Rather than the Lord God of the Hebrews has sent me to you, as they translate it here, it should say the Lord God of the Hebrews sent me to you. He is reiterating what was said. He's not stating something new. That first request was a mild one. It wasn't a demand and it was not requesting release, but rather simply a time of worship with an implied return back to Egypt. But the obstinate nature of Pharaoh immediately set him at odds with the request of Jehovah, the God of the Hebrews. Instead, he wouldn't hear. Verse 17, thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. When Moses first spoke to Pharaoh in chapter 5, his response was, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. Now Jehovah promises that Pharaoh will know who he is. However, he will have to repeat this several more times to Pharaoh. It isn't just this coming miracle then that will convince Pharaoh, but all of them combined and stored in his memory that will collectively cry out that he is in fact Jehovah. Pharaoh, like many of us, is a very tough nut to crack. But we can thank the Lord that he is long-suffering and he waits for us to yield our stubborn hearts to him. Unfortunately for Pharaoh, it will never truly transpire and he will be swept away by the Red Sea's waters. Verse 17 goes on, Behold, I will strike the waters which are in the river with the rod that is in my hand, and they shall be turned to blood. In this we have the commonly accepted idea of qui facit per alium facit per se. He who acts through another does the act himself. It is the Lord who pronounces these words in Hebrew, Anochi make badmate asher beyadi. I will strike with the staff that is in my hand. The action of the instrumental cause, which is the rod and hand of Aaron, is ascribed as the action of the principal cause, which is the work of the Lord. In this verse, though, is one of the most difficult to determine aspects of any of the ten plagues upon Egypt. It requires care, and it requires contemplation, but not belligerence. The words here are, and they shall be turned to blood. Question. Is this actually blood or is it not? The answer is one that haunts all scholars to some extent. Among other things, actual blood implies red and white blood cells. It implies DNA. It implies platelets and a host of other things that comprise blood. It would be way beyond the scope of all of the other miracles to produce all of these things. And yet the word blood is used. However, it is also used in a one-for-one -one comparative way many times in scripture, okay? In Joel, it says this about the moon. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. That's from Joel 2.13, and I believe that may be coming this September. We'll see. We're going to have a blood moon over Israel this September when everything seems to be coming to a head. But that's besides the point. We cannot assume that the moon literally became blood, and yet it says it will be turned to blood. It would be ludicrous to not see it as a metaphor. 
The blood moon is an eclipse. This is repeated in Acts 2.20 in the Greek, and it again says that it shall be turned into blood. It doesn't say like blood, but simply that it will be turned into blood. However, this type of sign is explained in Revelation 6, verse 12, where it says this, I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood. Exact same occurrence, now it's saying like instead of it is. Again, in Revelation 8, verse 8, in the second trumpet judgment on the earth, it says, Then the second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. It is again understood that this is like blood, even though elsewhere it says it became blood. Considering that the plagues of Egypt are given as pictures of the coming plagues on the world, we see that the turning of the Nile into blood means blood in a figurative sense. And yet, it is a figurative sense with a literal, biblical meaning. At times in the Bible, blood implies what? Life, death, and it implies judgment. The Nile being turned into blood is a demonstration of God's ability to give life, to take life, and to judge. Therefore, the description of blood, though not literal blood as we think of it, carries all of the connotations of blood in the Bible. This is not a sign, but a judgment. Just as the house of Pharaoh judged that the Hebrew children be cast into the Nile to die right at the beginning of Exodus, the Lord is now bringing judgment upon Egypt by bringing death to that very same Nile, which consumed those Hebrew children. The Nile, this false god of Egypt, will come under the judging hand of the true God of the Hebrews. As Matthew Henry says, the river of Egypt was their idol. That creature which we idolize, God justly takes from us or makes bitter to us. Verse 18, and the fish that are in the river shall die, the river shall stink, and the Egyptians will loathe to drink of the water of the river. The fish are singled out in this verse because it is known that at least three types of them were considered sacred to the Egyptians. But these supposedly sacred fish could not survive in the now bloodied waters. Fish are very infrequently mentioned in the Old Testament. But a study on them will show marvelous patterns. I got to tell you what. The first time that fish are seen is right in Genesis chapter 1 at the creation of the various types of life. After the exodus, the people of Israel will complain in the wilderness that when they were in Egypt, they had fish to eat. But they forgot that it is the Lord who created the fish and the Lord who destroyed the fish of the Nile. Later in Ezekiel, which speaks of the time of the millennial reign of Jesus Christ, it says this. Then he said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region, goes down into the valley. This is coming from Jerusalem and heads, enters the sea. When it enters the sea, its waters are healed and it shall be that every living thing that moves wherever the rivers go will live. There will be a very great multitude of fish because these waters go there for they will be healed and everything will live wherever the river goes. The living waters of the Nile died at the hand of the Lord. And the dead waters of the Dead Sea will come alive by his hand as well. Such is the nature of the Lord who creates, sustains, and judges. All life is bound up in the hand of the Lord. What he chooses for us is for him alone to decide. For those who humble themselves to him, there lies a reward. Eternal joy will be found in heaven at his side. Those who reject his life will remain eternally dead. But those who die through him will be granted life eternal. Better to choose the Lord now and be reconciled instead than to suffer the flames of the land infernal. 
O wayward man, learn the lesson of Pharaoh. Don't harden your heart to the sacred word. Instead, travel upon the path which is narrow and call out for salvation to Jesus the Lord. Our second thought today is blood throughout the land. Verses 19 through 22. Verse 19, then the Lord spoke to Moses, say to Aaron, take your rod and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their streams, over their rivers, over their ponds, and over all their pools of water, that they may become blood. In a direct command from Jehovah, the rod of God by which the plagues of Egypt are to be carried out is ordered to be stretched out over the waters of Egypt, and this directly in the presence of Pharaoh. When this is done, the water will become blood. The waters of Egypt included the Nile itself, which is the lifeline of water all the way through the country. To this day, it remains as such. The Nahar, or streams, are the natural waterways which branch off from the Nile. Seen from above, if you ever see a picture of Egypt from a satellite, they're the ones that look like fingers which branch out as the Nile progresses north. From there are the Yeor, which would be the lesser streams or canals. They may be natural, they may be man-made, and they would progressively rise and overflow during the wet season. After that are the Agam, translated as ponds. These could be lakes or marshes that would particularly flood as the Nile's high season arrived. And finally are the mikveh, or pools. The word mikveh implies a gathering, such as when God gathered together the waters and called them seas, way back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 10. These then would be cisterns, mostly were probably man-made, which could be filled as the Nile overflowed, or which could be filled by going to the Nile and manually carrying it to this cistern. Why such specificity? Why did I give you all those words? Pay attention for a couple more sermons from now and you'll know why. <laughs> Everything that received the once living waters of the Nile would be affected. They would now only receive the bloodied waters of judgment. Verse 19 continues, And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in the buckets of wood and pitchers of stone. This final portion of the verse has to be considered based on the verses to come. The words buckets and pitchers are inserted, and it makes it sound like any receptacle of water which were in a house was affected as well, but that cannot be the intent. What it means is that any water which is collected in those would be equally affected. The receptacles aren't being tied to the spoiling of the water directly, but that the water which would be collected in either wood or stone was affected. In essence, subsequent methods of purifying the water would not work. Verse 20, and Moses and Aaron did so, just as the Lord commanded. In obedience to the word of the Lord and showing no fear that the miracle may not happen, remember he's been reticent about everything, he's not that way anymore, and it would leave them in a state of embarrassment if that were the case. There's no fear. They do exactly as requested. The fears of failing once noted in Moses have completely disappeared. Now only obedience is seen. Verse 20 continues. So he lifted up the rod and struck the waters that were in the river, in the sight of Pharaoh, in the sight of his servants, and all the waters that were in the river were turned to blood. Directly in the sight of all, the miracle is performed. In this, the waters of the river, meaning anything into which the river flowed, is singled out. Judgment has come upon the Nile, and it serves as a double punch to Pharaoh. It is an attack against their supposed god, the Nile, and the fish which they revered. But it would also be an immense physical affliction upon the people of Egypt. This terrible plague is followed in type and pattern by the third trumpet and the third bowl judgments upon the world in the end times. 
In the third bowl judgment, for example, which is found in Revelation 16, it says this, then the angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water and they became blood. After that, the reason for that judgment is given. Here's what it says. You are righteous, O Lord, the one who is and who was and who is to be, because you have judged these things, for they have shed the blood of the saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, for it is their just due. Just as the Egyptian, Egyptians shed the blood of the Lord's Hebrew people, the unrepentant world has shed the blood of the Lord's saints and prophets. In response, the Lord will give them blood to drink, as is their just due. That which has been will be again, just as the Bible both depicts and proclaims. Verse 21, the fish that were in the river died, the river stank. As the Lord proclaimed, so it happened, the Nile and the life in it died. This then is not a normal seasonal occurrence, which has at other times been documented in the Nile. Before the Aswan Dam was built, the Nile fluctuated greatly every single year. In that time, before the Nile started to rise, it would actually be greenish because it's getting stagnant. However, eventually, as the waters increased, they would carry in microscopic organisms, which would actually turn it reddish. This is all documented. They would also stink during that process. If this is all that occurred, it would have been neither miraculous nor unexpected, and it wouldn't have killed everything in the Nile. Rather, this is something that was far worse than normal. But it was also a plague which Pharaoh could mentally brush off as simply worse than normal. This is especially true because of what is coming concerning his magicians. Thus, the Lord is passively continuing to harden Pharaoh's heart through the order of the plagues that he is delivering to the land and to the people. Verse 21 continues, so there was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. From the biblical perspective, the blood is judgment and this blood is death. And thus, judgment and the stench of death permeated all of the inhabited land of Egypt where the Nile flowed. There, wherever it was, judgment was found. The death of the fish would be an unusually difficult thing for the Egyptians because it was, and it continues even the modern times, to be a main source of food for the people. They would now lose this. And because the blood flowed to all places where the Nile flowed, it would mean that the entire stock of fish was affected. Even after the clearing of the waters, it would be a long and difficult time to repopulate the Nile with enough fish to once again feed the people. The judgment is a harsh one indeed. Verse 21 continues, And the Egyptians could not drink the water of the river. The waters that were in any capacity directly tied to the river truly became impossible to drink. Not only would it have been contaminated with this judging substance termed blood, but it would have also very quickly been further contaminated with the rotting fish which had died in the water. Within a very short time, the people would truly be suffering from the effects of this horrendous plague. Woe unto man who will not heed the Lord. Terrible are his judgments upon the unrepentant world. For man has forsaken the holy and precious word, and so upon their hardened hearts his judgments will be unfurled. But there is escape from this terrible fate. There is hope found in the Lord Jesus. Don't put it off. No, please don't hesitate. Call out to the one who died and rose again for us. In him is found life eternal, sure and sweet. In him is found the love of God. And so will be joy there before our feet, a heavenly path which forever we may trod. Our third thought today is seven days of plague. This is verses 22 through 25. Verse 22, then the magicians of Egypt did so with their enchantments. A stumbling block is placed right before the feet of Pharaoh. The Lord has chosen a plague which is repeatable by the magicians of Egypt. 
as God is the giver of life and the life is in the blood, it is assured that the blood noted in the previous verses is not truly blood in the literal sense. Whatever the magicians did, it was sufficiently comparable to that of what occurred in the Nile to be considered the same by Pharaoh. And this also demonstrates that the buckets and the pitchers which were mentioned above are not those which contain water that were in the houses at the time of the plague. If they were, then how could these have contained water? The arrogance of Pharaoh here is evident though. Just because the magicians could re reproduce the effects of this plague, they could not do so on the same scale as Moses and Aaron. The Nile was already converted to blood. Further, a portion of the miracle is the fact that the Nile died just as Aaron stretched the rod over it. The timing was exact and the scope of this event was total. Also, there was no note of an attempt to undo what the Lord had done by these guys. If Pharaoh were simply willing to pursue this path of understanding before turning away, he would see that the plague of the Lord was beyond the scope and control of his magicians. Despite this, Pharaoh willingly sides with that which is unreasonable. As a result, and Pharaoh's heart grew hard. From the Hebrew, it's apparent that the ability of the magicians to re reproduce this same effect is what hardened Pharaoh's heart. These two clauses are connected in such a way as to conclusively imply this. As the Lord knew the magicians would be able to do so, and as the Lord knows the hearts of men, it is his actions which harden Pharaoh, even though Pharaoh has willingly allowed his own heart to be hardened. Though this may seem like nitpicking this subject to death, it is something that we all need to continually remind ourselves about. If we harden our heart to the things of God, then the Lord will allow our hearts to be hardened against him by those things that he sends in our direction. In the end, his purposes will always prevail, but they work in accord with his knowledge of how we will respond to him based on the condition of our heart. Now, I'll just give you a quick example. I know somebody that told me once of one of his friends, uh, his wife died and his heart grew hard and he walked away from the Lord. Now, the Lord knew that that would happen. He allowed his heart to get hardened to that point and he walked away from the Lord. So these are the type of things that we need to keep our hearts off to and say, God, you are sovereign. No matter how bad it gets, I will not allow myself to be hardened to you because then his purposes will work against us. All right? And we don't want that to happen in our lives. So in other words, I want you to be soft, be open, and forever willing to comply with the Lord and his word. In this, you will always know that he will deal well with you as you live out your days. Verse 22 continues, And he did not heed them as the Lord had said. Who did Pharaoh not heed? He did not heed Aaron and Moses. The word is Elohim. It's plural. But in verse 17, the Lord said he would strike the waters. As Aaron and Moses are the designated representatives of the Lord, Pharaoh's not only rejecting them, but he's also rejecting Jehovah. The same pattern is seen in the end times. In Revelation chapter 11, there are the two witnesses who will carry the authority of the Lord. Their testimony, like that of Moses and Aaron, will be rejected and they will be killed. But before that happens, they will have the same authority granted to them by Jesus. In Revelation 11, verse 6, we read this. These, speaking of those guys, have the power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over the waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. Their words will be assigned to the people of the world. If they are heeded, those who heed will be saved. If they are ignored, those who harden their hearts will be lost. 
The condition of the heart will dictate the outcome of the final destiny. The hardening of Pharaoh's heart is attributed to the heart itself. It is not an active hardening by the Lord, but a self-willed hardening, which Pharaoh brought on himself by the prompting of the Lord. Pharaoh could have yielded, but he chose not to. In this, the Lord's knowledge of the heart and of the person's response is revealed. In 1 Kings 8, verse 39, we are told that the Lord alone knows the hearts of all the sons of men. In Revelation 2, verse 23, this same attribute is ascribed to Jesus. So either there's a contradiction in the Bible, or it's one of the countless proofs that Jesus of the New Testament is the same as Jehovah, uh, the Lord of the Old Testament. Here's what that verse from Revelation says. All the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts and I will give to each one of you according to your works. The Bible is substantiating again and again for us to see that Jesus Christ is Jehovah of the Old Testament. Pharaoh's heart has been searched out by the Lord. He has willingly hardened himself to the Lord's passive promptings, and he alone is responsible for the judgment that he will receive. The same is true with the people now in the world, and it's same with the people in the end times as well. The hardened heart is a terrifying and powerful source of eternally sad consequences. Verse 23, and Pharaoh turned and went into his house. Neither was his heart moved by this. This takes us right back to Exodus 7, 10 through 13, where the rod was changed into a serpent. At the end of that encounter, it said, and Pharaoh's heart grew hard and he did not heed them as the Lord had said. Two demonstrations before Pharaoh had been repeatable by his magicians. Despite these being on a much higher order than that of his own people's tricks, he was convinced enough to remain unchanged in his attitude towards the Lord. And unfortunately, I'd like you to pay attention to these next few words. We can make a very good comparison to what occurred here and to the Bible itself. The Lord has spoken and his words are recorded there, right? But other books all over the world make many of the same general claims that the Bible makes. You know, we have the flood account recorded in Genesis, you know, 7 through 9, right? And yet there are flood accounts recorded elsewhere in the world, right? And then we have the book of Proverbs, which is recorded in God's word. It's written by Solomon. And yet they have a document which is very similar to Proverbs found in the uh, Egyptian scrolls. So we have those parallels. We have these things that seem to be on the same category or order. And of course, we have the Lord who spoke words of his own. Right in uh, Luke 6, 31, we read what is commonly known to as the golden rule. Let me read this to you. And just as you want men to do to you, you also do to them likewise, okay? But this general precept is found in a host of other religions. In one form or another, you're going to find at least 20 different religions, I'm sure. Confucius says it this way. He says, never impose on others what you would not choose for yourself. Sounds the same, doesn't it? Such knowledge will often lead the hardened heart to immediately assume that one religion is just the same as the other. You've got to keep thinking of why this has been done by Pharaoh and what we're to learn from this. However, just as the miracle of the Lord is on a completely different level than the false miracles of the magicians of Egypt, the word of the Lord, when studied and understood, is on a completely different level than any and all religions of the world. We are responsible for where we place our faith to exercise it without checking the facts and then contemplating the sources of those facts can have eternal consequences. 
Pharaoh, despite being the ruler of the greatest nation on earth, was actually a very shallow thinker. Verse 24, so all the Egyptians dug all around the river for water to drink because they could not drink of the water of the river. Those who know the layout of the land of Egypt are aware of the fact that apart from the Nile River, there are no other natural sources of drinking water available in the land, such as springs or fountains or other rivers. However, there is water underground which can be accessed, but it is not suitable for drinking because of the soil conditions of the land. Unlike other areas where wells are commonly dug, Egypt didn't follow this practice because of it. However, with the only truly palatable water ruined, they were left with only this option. Because of the record here, even the most liberal of scholars must admit that the author of this account had an exacting knowledge of the geography and the water system of Egypt. It is a nice touch concerning the authenticity of Moses as the true author. Verse 25 finishes with these words, and seven days passed after the Lord had struck the river. Chapter seven ends with a note of specificity concerning the duration of the plague seven days. Now, some scholars will attempt to tie this seven-day period into the start of the next plague, which is recorded in Exodus 8, verse 1, but that is unlikely. Rather, the plague itself is what lasted seven days. It's been documented that the normal period of discoloration of the Nile lasts for a much longer time. Therefore, this is again an evidence of the divine nature of the plague. The clearing of the blood from Egypt took less time than the normal flow of the river to do the same. The question which I had to ponder then for some time is why seven days? After rereading the entire account, it seems to me that this goes back to the original request which was made in Exodus 4 verse 3, which said this, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go three days journey into the desert and sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or sword. The request was repeated in verse 16, that they wanted to go into the wilderness to serve the Lord. But because of Pharaoh's refusal, it was said that the plague of blood would immediately ensue. Thus, it is a sign to Pharaoh. They had asked for a trip which would require three days travel in each direction. Thus, with the one day of sacrifice, it would have been a seven-day journey. The plague of blood was given as a punishment, a day for a day, for depriving the Lord of the honor that he was due at the ceremony in the wilderness. And this appears to be a one-to-one -one comparison with the seven-year tribulation period which is coming in the end times. Daniel 9 verse 27 shows that in fact a seven-year covenant will be made between Israel and the Antichrist. Peace, peace, we want peace, and this is going to happen. The Bible says it is. There will be a year of tribulation for each year of this covenant. And so there is a pattern which is reflected right here in this first plague. The glory of the Lord is proclaimed throughout the Bible. It is man's duty to recognize it and to proclaim it. From the intricate spider's web to the complexity of the cosmos, every part of creation cries out glory. And it tells us of infinite wisdom. God created us as sentient beings because he desires us to share in his glory, to acknowledge it, and to rejoice in it. But from moment to moment, we fail to do so. We set up idols in our hearts. We ascribe worship to the creation rather than the creator, and we follow our own paths, rarely giving him any regard at all. Only when things get bad do we really normally even think to give him any remembrance, and it's usually, oh God, why did this happen? Let us do our best every day to pursue him, to consider his goodness in our lives, and to give him the glory that he is due. 
And in order to truly have a right fellowship with him, we must deal with the sin in our life, which separates us from him. And we're going to be celebrating that moment next Friday. Good Friday. Christ took care of that sin problem for us. And I'd like you to give me just another minute to tell you how this can come about in your own life. He has done everything necessary to restore us to a happy and an eternal relationship with him once again. He did it in the giving of his son, Jesus. So let me explain that to you. You have sin in your life. He didn't. He died on a cross. If you believe that, you will be saved. And to prove it, God brought him out of the grave. He rose again. Hallelujah to the Lord Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Our closing verse today is from Psalm 68. It's the fourth verse. Sing to God. Sing praises to his name. Extol him who rides on the clouds by his name, Yah, and rejoice before him. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you, and he has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if a deep ocean lies ahead of you, he can part the waters and he can lead you through it on dry ground. So follow him and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Now, our poem today is entitled The Plague of Blood. This is one of the hardest poems I ever typed. Just sometimes they don't, they're not conducive to poem typing. This is one of them, people. Enjoy it. So the Lord said to Moses about Pharaoh, Pharaoh's heart is hard. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning when he goes out to the water and you shall stand by the river's banks to meet him. And the rod which was turned to a serpent, you shall take in your hand. And you shall say to him, even so, the Lord God of the Hebrews has sent me for this address, saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But indeed, until now you would not hear, thus says the Lord, by this you shall know, that I am the Lord whom you shall fear. Behold, I will strike the waters which are in the river, even I will do so, with the rod that is in my hand, and they shall be turned to blood throughout the land. And the fish that are in the river shall die, the river shall stink, and of the water of the river the Egyptians will loathe to drink. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, say to Aaron, take your rod and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, their streams, rivers, ponds, and over all their pools of water throughout the land, that they may become blood, and there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in buckets of wood and pitchers of stone, and overwhelming flood. And Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded so. So he lifted up the rod and struck the waters that were in the river in the sight of Pharaoh. And in the sight of his servants it was done, and all the waters that were in the river were turned to blood. Of fresh water there was none. The fish, in the, the fish that were in the river died, the river stank, and the Egyptians could not, we understand, drink the water of the river. Of it no one drank, so there was blood throughout all of Egypt the land. Then the magicians of Egypt did so with their enchantments, a lie they spread, and grew hard the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not heed them as the Lord had said. Then Pharaoh turned and into his house went, neither was his heart moved by this event. So all the Egyptians dug all around the river for water to drink. Thus they searched for water in the ground, which would not be foul and stink, because they could not drink of the water of the river. In it was a plague of whom the Lord was the giver. And seven days passed according to the word after the river was struck by the Lord. This is the first terrible plague upon Egypt, the land. But nine more will come because of Pharaoh's hard heart. It is a lesson for us to hear and understand and in our own lives to make a new start. Let us soften our hearts to the word of the Lord so that to him we will be acceptable, each of us. And to the cross, let our eyes look toward 
remembering always the work of Jesus. Yes, O God, keep us on the path that is true. May our hearts, may we keep our hearts soft and be pleasing to you. And someday we know you will come again for us. We anxiously await your return, Lord Jesus. Hallelujah and amen. Ah, Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, getting me through this sermon, even though my tongue's been a little twisted today. I thank you. It's, uh, it's such a pleasure to preach on your word and to know that there are hearts out there that want to know the, the substance behind the words and to seek out the treasures which are here and also to learn the lessons that we can learn from them, that we have hearts and that we allow our own hearts to be either softened towards you or hardened towards you. And it's a voluntary choice that we need to make. Help us to make the right one each and every moment. When catastrophe comes, help us to prevail and to just proclaim that you are God and you are sovereign. Blessed be the name of the Lord as you take away or as you give. And uh, as we face joys, help us to remember to say thanks for those joys because that's something we also often forget to do. We forget to give you the thanks and the praise that you're due. You've given us gas for our car. You got us through the green light when we were in a hurry. Whatever it is, help us to just remember that it all came from your open hand of grace. Lord, we want to thank you for the uh, Lord's table that we're going to have in just a moment. And thank you for the fellowship of the people that are in this church today. Just this morning as I came to the church and I was opening it up, I was thanking you, Lord, for each person, how wonderful it is to be with them and to share with them. And I hope each one of them feels the same, that they found a home and that this is a place where they can fellowship with other Christians and know that they're welcome. Lord, we thank you for this. We thank you for these things and we thank you for the joy that you've set before us as we await the return of Jesus to take us to our heavenly home. What a great thought it is. Thank you for that. We love you. We praise you in his exalted name. Amen.